Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So today we have a really cool episode in that um, I was super excited to have this guest on, Dr. Elisa Woodruff. Uh, she and I go back again to high school and then it turned into you, Shayla She, really becoming excited by the conversation because I feel like you and she like really vibed. Well, absolutely. I think uh, I was as we've talked about, you know, before each, each conversation has its own special flavor, right? It's goes in a certain direction. And some people talk more about their professional lives and some people talk about their personal lives and some people talk about, you know, their activism and some people talk less about that. And they talk about, you know, how they've been personally affected. Um, so to talk to Lisa today was so great because we, I was learning so much about a field that I'm really, really interested in, but also it has deep connections with um, the work I've done in the past around reproductive health rights and justice. So, you know, for her to talk about these concepts of what it means to be sexual, asexual, and how our concepts and what we think is, you know, what's like the thing, what's the, you know, what's the hegemony and what's not, um, how that affects everything. Well, I think so. So to, to lay the foundation, uh, Elisa is a counselor and she actually also is a counseling educator, but she came to her field of study because she was searching for how to describe herself. She is what she describes as asexual, gray, aromantic, which means, as you'll hear, she's not quite sure where on the scale of uh, romanticism and aromantic that she is, um, and genderqueer. And I love also in the beginning, we talk a lot about pronouns and stuff. She actually introduces herself with her pronouns. I think we should yes. do that more often. Yes, um, absolutely. So what was fantastic is the conversation was really marbleized between her personal journey and then what she teaches and what she has um, provided in terms of the research and, and academia. and. Um, I was so thrilled by how much I learned in this episode and in this conversation. Yeah. In fact, you know, the more I reflect on it, the more I think that this might be one of our most important episodes that we've ever done. Because as you'll hear her talk 
in the, in the, you know, in the podcast is that being asexual and aromantic is, it's a marginalized group amongst the LGBTQA plus community. And it's deeply misunderstood. And so, and it's pathologized. All three layers of those things going on. Um, and so to have someone come on our podcast, share their story, talk about you know what it means and what the nuances are that the research shows and you know sort of what's been done to date and where we have yet to go and to validate for any of our listeners or anyone of our listeners who knows someone who might be you know thinking about this or they think they might be thinking about this that's so critically important and I don't want to detract from any of the other people who've been on our podcast. Every story is important and we're so grateful to all of our guests, but I feel like this is the first time we've talked to someone where people are like, oh, I didn't even know that could be a thing. Right. And usually we say like, oh, you like wait until the, you know, the advice that she gives or just wait until the episode. But I think it is so hugely important what what she advises and the resources that she gives that even if people only listen to seven minutes of this podcast in terms of this introduction I think we want to say it so um there is an amazing resource that she mentioned several times it's asexuality.org also known as the asexual visibility and education network again that's asexuality.org if you are questioning need resources, need somebody. She actually gives her email address, which is Woodruff, W-O-O-D-R-U-F-F at B-V-U dot E-D-U. Again, Woodruff at B-V-U dot E-D-U. The advice that she gives is that you're valid. You're not wrong. You're not broken. You're not sick. You are just you. And there are resources for you to ask those questions and get some answers. Yeah. I could not be more grateful to Elisa for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much, Elisa. Enjoy listening to Dr. Elisa Woodruff. She is speaking. Hello, my name is Dr. Elisa Woodruff. My pronouns are she and her, and I am speaking. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Lisa, Dr. Dr. Woodruff. <laughs> you can oh. call me E. <laughs> I can call you Lisa or E. Or yeah. Before we go too far, I think it's worth, not even, not, not even too far, before we go any far, it's worth mentioning and establishing the fact that Kosha and Elisa went to high school together. So you may hear some little sprinklings of memories or inside jokes or remembrances of things that they did together. Um, in fact, right before this, we'd heard a story about how they bonded over a mutual love of a band that nobody would expect. We were 14 at the time and we bonded over our love of the monkeys. Peter forever. Yeah, yeah. And we are also really, really good friends with Anne-Marie Pedraza, who was on last season. So it's a lot of connections. It's awesome. Yeah, awesome. So Elisa is here to, today to talk to us about 
both her own experience, but also the research and issues of beauty, of issues of romantic relationships in general, issues of friendship. Um, but we're going to start with the fact, and um, we're going to ask Elisa to talk about her own personal experience and how she identifies on the gender and sexuality spectrum. So I'm going to, Elisa, rather than put words in your mouth, I'm going to let you talk about your own experience. Sure. Um, so thank you for having me on. Um, I guess, you know, uh, asexuality and aromanticism are some very nebulous concepts. So it's always interesting to try to find words for each person's experience. And I can certainly talk about the spectrums that people experience and there's a lot of language around it. Uh, at this time, the way I identify is as asexual, as gray aromantic, and as genderqueer. So also, Elisa, um, we will hear, we'll probably hear you say ace and arrow. Is that correct? Yeah. So like kind of the shorthand for asexual would be ace. Um, and some people will even say like ace of hearts or ace of spades. Ace of hearts is a romantic asexual. Ace of spades is a romantic asexual. Um, and then I, I'm using the idea of gray aromanticism because gray is kind of where you kind of know you're somewhere in that spectrum, but you haven't really nailed it down yet. It's kind of a, a word that implies questioning, right? Um, and then genderqueer uh, to me uh, means that I don't necessarily fall in like traditional binary definitions. Um, for a long time, I just considered myself androgynous my whole life. I was raised as a woman. I was socialized as a woman. I occasionally feel that way, but not. In, I don't necessarily identify with the all the women in my life the same way I think that they do. So, what would be what would be the difference, Elisa, between that gender queer and non-binary? Um, it really has to do with what the person I think is that I, I I'm also a, a professional counselor and a professor of counseling, and so when I'm working with clients and everything, it's really what word best would do you want to use to describe yourself? And I think that there's a lot of like prove your identity kind of stuff that comes from the other side. And it's like, I shouldn't have to, if these are the words that are most comfortable for me, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people who are on the asexual spectrum uh, identify as non-binary or agender. There was some study in 2016, Scott Dawson and somebody else who um, said, you know, that a third of the, their participants said that gender was completely irrelevant to their identity. And I think that that's, the, the explanation for that is that in many ways, gender is the way that we kind of advertise who we're interested in. And so if there's a lack of person to be interested in, the gender maybe doesn't matter as much. Um, there's also some conversation about the developmental kind of trajectory of figuring out that you're asexual kind of clouds out like a lot of other developmental trajectories. So like teenagers and young adults often aren't paying attention to things like gender or race, racial identity or uh, career development or, you know, value development and stuff like that, because it's just so all encompassing. It's difficult to research asexuality, and I don't want to in any way say that I'm speaking for everyone. I'm speaking for what, what we know, and um, I mean, I can talk about why it's difficult to research. People may themselves have different definitions of what certain things mean. So I think it would be great for this podcast and for our listeners, for us to establish sort of like, when we say asexual, 
what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say aromantic? What do we mean? Even just in the universe of this podcast. And it, again, I want all of our listeners to know that those definitions are in works and people have, may have different ideas about what they mean personally, but for the sake of this podcast, we're going to go with how Elisa defines them. Oh yeah, sure. So the, the kind of the standard definition is a person who does not experience sexual attraction or does not experience romantic attraction. Okay. Um, and that's kind of like the given definition that's used um, by the uh, Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, which is asexuality.org, if anybody wants to follow up after this. Okay, yeah, it's a great resource for anybody who is ace, thinks they may be ace, questioning friends, family, clinicians who are interested in 31 countries and 19 languages too. So um, it's a worldwide network um, and really is one of the reasons that we even know about this phenomenon. There were a lot of people living alone for a long time, wondering if there was some, something going on that they were the only one experiencing. And because of the internet, we now know that it's a, quite, it's a phenomenon that's much bigger. But the attraction word, person who does not experience attraction, um, I can speak mostly for asexuality, not so much for aromanticism, but you kind of think of it as A, B, C, D, but I'm going to go backwards. D is for desire. Asexual people still have physiological responses that you would consider sexual in terms of the hormones are this are working, the blood is going to all the right places, like things are warming up where they're supposed to, right? It's not about a lack of physical like ability to have sex. And many people who are asexual still have sex. They still masturbate. They still get involved with people who are not asexual. We call allosexual people. C is for cognition. Um, people may still think about sex, um, identify as sexual, whether or not they are experiencing sexual attraction or not. And then B is for behavior. People are still in romantic relationships. They're having sex for a lot of reasons, one of which includes wanting to have children or, you know, um, pleasing a partner or manipulating a partner or what, whatever, right? So the attraction piece is this idea of when I see the target of my attraction, then people are not experiencing like a desire to go for it, right? Like, and that's kind of like what Anthony Bogart in 2012 basically identified as being like the reason we use the word attraction. The interesting word about orientation though is orientation means that I'm like attracted to something that there's like an object. And when there's a lack of an object, there's a lot of people who just say it's the absence of an orientation. And it's hard to prove a negative, which is why it's such a nebulous concept to define, to research. People who are asexual are often, or aromantic are often put on the defensive as to the fact that their identity even exists. Like, oh, well, if you just tried, oh, if you just found the right person kind of thing. I mean, this is, it's just an extension of various arguments that were leveled against uh, women and particularly um, who identified as, as lesbian, right? And being like, oh, you just haven't met the right guy. You just haven't got banged. 
correctly, right? You just haven't had a good enough sexual encounter. Right. And it sounds like this is just an extension of that. Oh, the reason that you are not experiencing attraction to either romantic or sexual is because you just haven't met the right person. Yeah. And let me show you, right? Like there's a lot of assault that happens to this community. We call it coercive rape where, or where people will actually say, here, let me show you, I will awaken your sexuality. And it can happen through coercion or it can happen actually violently. And it's um, the official word is corrective rape. That's very common in a lot of um, sexual and gender minority populations to experience that. Um, in this population, a lot of the times people are in a partnership with somebody who's not asexual. And so it can actually happen within relationships as coercion. Like if you loved me, you'd do this kind of thing um, and, and violently. But yeah, I joked once that no better way to get hit on in a bar than to bring up the fact that you're asexual. I can see that. Oh, sure. That makes, then everyone's out to prove themselves. And it's, then it's trying to pick up Thor's hammer. I am worthy, right? And so, I mean, I don't say that for shock value. I just see it as much to let you know why people may not be out, why they may be afraid of being out, um, let alone the interpersonal kind of misunderstandings that happen among friendships, in romantic relationships, with healthcare providers. One of the reasons I got into this work is because I was seeing so many healthcare providers screw up, even with even with me, like, oh, we'll send you for hormone testing, or oh, you must have trauma somewhere, or oh, you know, there's always an explanation other than asexuality, right? Yeah, that, and, and the, I mean, the other thing that I think gets layered onto this, and I'm, I think we're going to go there at the, you know, in this episode, is body image and what bodies look like and you know, sort of obesity and how comfortable people are in their bodies and all kinds of things and how disenfranchising it can be to be a consumer in the healthcare system and having your provider basically tell you everything is wrong with you, starting from the way you look and how much you weigh to your relationships to, oh, what, you don't experience any, any sexual desire? Actually, I should say not desire, attraction. That's a problem. Everybody does that, right? As opposed to being like, that's one way of being a person yeah yeah and asking probably the better question in those situations is you're saying you don't experience sexual attraction does that bother you is that a problem well yeah and i think you know um you you said so much in there and i kind of want to hit on some of it um is is that there has been a history of diagnosis of this uh or a particular orientation And, you know, I said earlier, is it a lack of an orientation, but we argue that it is an orientation because we do have certain experiences in common, right? In the seventies, they added some diagnoses to the DSM that had to do with sexual performance and sexual interest. And it's so interesting how it kind of followed like this very Freudian, like they first, they called it inhibition. And then when the couples and family counseling movement happened, they called it hypoactive sexual desire disorder because it said that somebody was lower than the other, right? And there's like frigidity too, right? The woman is just frigid. Yeah, well, yeah, they had a female version and a male version. Female sexual disorder. In the DSM-5, we worked really hard to have it put in as a rule out. Like we want people to have access to those diagnoses, but to have it put in as a rule out, like 
or they might be asexual. And it, it, it there was so much pushback on that and we didn't really get what we were looking for. So, so I mean, there's a drug on the market called Flibinserin that you can give to somebody to fix their libido. And we are very worried about um, asexual folks being kind of coerced or convinced that they need to take it which is to me just the same as the corrective, you know, therapy, the, the, the things that we hear about with the, the abuse of like, you're not gay here, we're going to fix you kind of stuff. It's the same thing to me. It's on the same continuum as forced sterilization and mm-hmm. these like, re, I don't know what they call them. It's like re-education schools of, of native children, right? It's on the same spectrum, which is it's, all about someone else imposing a standard on you that says this is not okay even though you're fine with it right like you're fine with it but we think it's not okay therefore it's a problem and you need to be corrected and for a long time the kind of like the thing they would ask is like well is the person okay with it well a lot of times if you've never encountered the word I'm going to introduce a term here and I want everybody to pick up on it sexual normativity you've probably heard heteronormativity right? Like the idea of like, we privilege and prize and default to the idea that everybody's heterosexual or Eurocentric, we default to the idea that everybody's European white or, you know, whatever, right? So this is sexual normativity. We default to the idea that everybody has, it desires sex and wishes to to engage in it, right? That is the meta force that's at work in all of this, right? Yeah. You're going to see it in the media. You see it in law. You see it in medicine, marriage, everywhere. Yeah. Marriage law. It's been in mental health, um, in education, like it's all over the place. And with those kind of lenses, we don't see them until somebody tells us to see them. And then we yeah. see it everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I want to take a little pivot back, pick up. We started this a little bit uh, about you defining for us how you would define those terms. And then I want to move forward and say, can you talk a little bit or tell us a little bit about how you came to realize that you were asexual and that you were somewhere on this, on this, you know, sliding scale of, of being aromantic, as you've described it being a gray aromantic. So, you know, when did those light bulbs go on for you? Well, so this will be funny because we said like, Kosha and I went to high school together, so I'm not going to reference people, but she may know who I'm talking about. So she did, she wasn't with me in kindergarten, but I remember my first boyfriend in kindergarten, you know, and we would sit in the back of the bus together on the way home from school. And I wanted to like talk about stuff and play games and he wanted to hold hands and I didn't really get that, like, you know, and it just, that stuff just kind of developed, like when in when we're 11 and 12 and everybody's going to the roller rink and wanting to hold hands. And I just had no, I just remember being like, something is happening for these people. And there's this, they're prioritizing this new thing and I don't get it. And I think this is where I want to read my, my little thing that I brought. Okay. This is from a wonderful book called Ace and Proud. It's an asexual anthology of coming out stories. But in the introduction, A.K. Andrews gives us this little allegory, and it speaks very much to what it was like growing up and not knowing what was going on. And so it says, imagine that you live in a world where everyone is obsessed with pie. 
The lyrics to every top 10 song revolve around the acquisition of pie, the consumption of pie, or heartbreak over lack of pie. Teenagers in high school classrooms can barely focus on their schoolwork because they're busy fantasizing about eating pie. Poets write odes to pie and beautiful oil paintings of pie hang in the halls of every museum and art gallery on the planet. In short, human society is shaped, defined, and ruled by this baked dessert. But there's one small problem. You don't like pie. It's not that you have any particular vendetta against it. You just, you know, it's not for you. You may have even tried it once or twice out of curiosity, although the experience wasn't exactly satisfying. You know that most people look at pie and feel an overwhelming urge to consume it, but you feel nothing. It's just pie for heaven's sake. What's all the fuss about? Now replace pie with sex and you've just peeked into the mind of an asexual person. It's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but I think you get the picture. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that. So, Lucy, you know, you imagine you're, you're in junior high and all of a sudden your friends are all like, oh, pie, 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 pie. And they're like, well, have you tried it? And you're like, well, I tried a sliver of it once, you know, and did I mean, that's essentially what it was like. And then people say, you just haven't had the right pie. Yeah, try another slice, right? Like, well, what, you know, what do you want from me, right? Like, and so it was just one of those things where, um, I mean, obviously when I was 13, 14 years old, sex wasn't necessarily on the table yet. I mean, it, it could have been, but it was more like, oh shoot, I better go through some motions in order to like have like us have like a social space. So I remember like people would set me up. He's going to be your boyfriend now. I mean, you know how junior high is like, he's going to be your boyfriend now. And like, you're going out, but I would always pick the guys that were like the least available because I knew that they were safe that we wouldn't end up going there a lot of the times. And so even through high school and stuff like that, and throughout my life, I, I didn't actually realize there was a word for what I was experiencing until I was 33 years old. So I was in relationships, I was experiencing all the things, I was going through the motions. It's not that people who are asexual or aromantic don't get into relationships, but they always were like really, great friendships where it felt like we were kind of like going through the motions of all the other things that we had to do. And some of the people that I dated didn't mind and some of the people that, you know, but it was, it was an experience of there's something not right here. And I thought maybe I'm a lesbian, right? So like I tried dating women and I tried sleeping with women and then like, maybe, okay, that's not working, you know? And it was just like, there were so many things. And so I was just like, I'm questioning. And, and in that there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of, I mean, there was some significant mental health stuff and there was some significant substance abuse stuff that went on with that in terms of like, well, if I've got to go through the motions, I might as well be stupid doing it. When I was 33 years old in counseling school, we had to write for our, our social and cultural foundations class. We had to write a paper where we like self-identified, like wrote all of our identities. And I'm like, I don't have a word for this. And I found, a, found it on the internet. And I actually wrote the paper and put it in there and then took it out and then turned in the paper and then brought another page to the, to the professor and like said, I want to add this back in. And he was wonderful. He said, you know, he's like, it's a process. It's okay. Because he was a gay man. 
And so he understood, you know, I think he at least understood the, the coming out process, but it took me another three years to like publicly talk about it. And most of it ended up being through research. Like I, it was kind of like an, an excuse to learn about it was to have it be my research. So that's why I, I speak about it from a academic standpoint, because that's really, I don't know many asexual people that I haven't met online or through my I present, I present and train on it a lot. So people will come up and come out to me, you know, like the bar doesn't really have ace night, you know, like. <laughs> right, 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 right. Awesome. I'm, I'm sure they, they're starting to, but at my, in my day, in my day, um, they, you know, they had like. In your day, you're like five years younger than me, so. Our days are the same, Lisa. <laughs> well, I mean, like when I was in the city living on the North side in the LGBTQIA population, there was every kind of gay male night. There was the, the bubbles night and there was the positive night and there was the, you know, the all, all different the older men night, whatever, but there wasn't, they weren't talking about asexuality, right? And so I didn't have a term for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely imagine. And, you know, I think going back to that, that analogy of pie, I think what's so what it misses on some level is that for most people who are somewhere on the sexuality spectrum somewhere, right, who have, who experience sexual attraction, like you said, it is the kind of thing where you don't even notice that, that there's some, there could be a, a not this state, right? It's, you know, to be like, oh, I'm attracted to women. Oh, I'm oh, I'm not attracted to women. I'm attracted to men. Okay, there's there's sort of a opposite there. But this like the nothing, like the blank, right? There's nothing here for me. Doesn't mean I don't, you know. In a, I always think about uh, studies where they were, uh, you know, in in clinic in the lab clinically study sexual arousal, and it's you know that kind of thing, which is like people who are asexual can be sexually aroused. And when they feel aroused, they, they feel what people feel, but it's a very, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is it's, it's responsive, not self-directed. So 2011, um, they hooked up a bunch of asexual women's vaginas to um, electrodes and they showed them porn and they tried to see what would happen and guess what their bodies responded but they didn't have the subjective arousal like they didn't realize they were their bodies were responding and they were not necessarily mentally responding one of the things that really makes it difficult to uh prove that a woman or a man rapes a man is because they'll be like, well, you had an erection, like you, you came, you know, like as everyone knows, like I've had a couple of relationships with men who ended up being gay, we would make out and there was a response there. So like you can't, but they, they're fair, they're definitely gay. Right. And so my point is that that's what makes it so difficult to be like, you know, in court, be like, you raped that man. Well, no, he had an erection. Well, that's, that's a physiological response to a stimulus. That's not necessarily, you know, something that's going through their head and that, and they're excited. Right, right. And we even know that people's behavior is different than necessarily their attraction because we see all these people who are in relationships with 
you know, a, a, a woman who's in a relationship with a man for 20 years and then suddenly says the, the, the thing here is that I'm actually a lesbian, you know, like yeah. people's behavior and their, their bodily responses don't have a lot to do with it. It really has more to do with that, that core, I'm going to act on these feelings and move, move towards it. And the other thing about identifying, I think, is that it's like, well, am I asexual enough? Right. You're going to have to tell me what that means because that doesn't mean for the longest time um i was sitting there saying well i've been in relationships mostly with men i've had sex it's been enjoyable like so does that make me asexual because the the standing kind of the the constant microaggression is well if you had sex you can't be asexual right or like you have to your identity or whatever and that's where i go back to that like autonomy of person's choice to say it like it's it's the same as like me. I don't want to say the same, but maybe very similar to a trans person who isn't transitioning, is but is saying internally, I'm feeling this, and people say, well, then why don't you, you know, this, that, and the other thing about your out your appearance, and somehow you have to prove it, like you have to qualify it. There's a litmus test for what it means. The social to be able script. to say that yeah. this is what it is, right? Yeah. Oh, well, if you identify in such and such a way. This is how you can prove to us that you deserve to call yourself a certain, deserve to wear the identity badge that you're wearing. Yeah. So what you're speaking to is like, they back, that there's actually like a list of microaggressions that happen to asexual people in these, you're, you, you're all, you, you two are naming them all basically. Well, and I think it's, you know, if we want to take it, just step back and connect the two seasons, this is a really great opportunity to just talk about how microaggressions get thrown at everybody about everyone who's not in the sort of culturally dominant group, whatever that is, right? And even sometimes it gets thrown at them. But, you know, I, I think for the longest time, and I can't speak to Kosha's 100% experience, but I know there's a lot of like, well, you're not Indian enough. You don't have enough Indian friends. You don't. You don't cook Indian food. You don't this. You don't do that. Well, there's. I. I'm Indian. We are Indian. Our parents came from India, so that makes us Indian. And there's no. I don't have to act a certain way or dress a certain way or do a certain thing or not to do certain things, to then be able to call myself an Indian woman. And what right? they're and saying is, you don't fit my stereotype. Exactly. Exactly. So they're basically just saying they have a story. It's a, you know, we hear this all the time from literally everyone. Well, you're not, you know, my son's on the spectrum. He doesn't act like he's on the spectrum. Well, I'm sorry. That's his diagnosis. And, you know, he is. Glad you became an expert all of this. And this is just another example, although I, I don't want to minimize how challenging it can be because there is sort of like this movement is both a little nebulous and also nascent in the fact that like, like you were saying, a lot of people didn't even understand that that's how they would identify until the internet. So we're talking what, like 20 years really? Well, okay, so in 2001, a, a, a university student in San Francisco named David Jay said, I can't be the only one who's feeling like this. And he put on his university server of the word asexuality, thinking that if people searched for the term, they might find him because he wanted to find some friends. And that became the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network. The first scientific study wasn't until three years later. So he actually pre, 
yeah. dated the first the first real population study that was done in 2004 like where they said wow okay like we know like that this is a bigger number than we thought of people and even that there's a lot of methodological questions about I mean David J for many of us is considered kind of like the prophet or you know like the he like um and he has been doing tons of activism since and um, all of these things, just but the fact that he just put himself out there and thought to put it on the internet, because otherwise, again, you open the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, mm-hmm. and you're going to find out about amoebas. So, yes, absolutely. And wow. so, so we also have to ask ourselves when we're doing these population studies and stuff about the privilege of being able to access the internet. Very good point. Yes. When I did my when I did my dissertation, I could sit around and wait forever for 200 asexuals to just pop up or I could go to the internet to recruit my sample. And I did because I needed to do this work. You would still be waiting if you were just waiting. Like, that's what the demographics were. The demographics were higher SES, younger, able-bodied, educated people. What is SES? I'm sorry. Um, socioeconomic status. Socioeconomic status. And I was very specific to make sure that my survey could be on at least on cell phones because a lot of people in this country, um, cell phones are their only access to the internet, but I didn't want it to, I mean, like I'm sitting here going, well, is it wide enough that somebody would like shut it off because it was too hard to read or whatever? Because like, I was just desperate to get as thorough of a sample as possible. And Avon does a census every year, but they're surveying their own people. And I gave them a hard time a couple of years ago because they're surveying all their own people in English. Mm, yeah. I said, is there a translation of this survey? You've got 19 languages in 31 countries. Is there a translation of this survey? They said, no. Huh? So, you know, hopefully, hopefully they will. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't, Avon's doing as the best work they possibly can. And I don't want to in any way disparage them, but it was definitely like, yeah, we need to get this into other, into other languages. Well, it's one of those eye-opening situations where it's like, you're clawing your way to some sense of like, being part of the population we were not recording when we when you talked about the miriam webster thing can you actually can you say that again because i think it's really really indicative so in 2018 ish maybe it was 2017 some asexual activists finally got up until then oxford dictionary and miriam webster's dictionary if you open to the word asexual there would be information about amoebas and about asexual reproduction. So if you can imagine somebody who didn't have access to the internet, but goes to the library and says, huh, asexual opens it up, sees that, says, oh, I'm not an amoeba and closes it. That's the end of their, that could potentially be the end of their journey. And that could be self-harm. That could be suicide. That could be, I am, I'm sick, I'm wrong you know, there's something wrong with me, right? Like this is, there are mental health consequences to this. So in 2017, 18, there were petitions that just went and went and went and went. Miriam Webster went first and then Oxford went second and put in a third line that said, or a, you know, a legitimate sexual orientation, go to asexuality.org for more info. Oh, wow. That's quite a victory. Yes, because that that that's a link to the idea that like, you're not alone. 
and that could be that could be life saving to some people. And when you go to Avon, like I keep saying, Avon, the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, asexuality.org. I'll just keep saying that. And you go to the forums, and like there's like the newcomer people. It's always just like, oh my gosh, there's people out there like me. Oh my god. Oh my gosh, such a relief. I'm crying tears. Uh, you know, I mean, just like the relief. Yeah. So I just looked at Merriam-Webster, and it's three B not having sexual feelings toward others, not experiencing sexual desire or attraction. In general, an asexual person does not feel or otherwise experience any sexual attraction according to the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. Yeah. Basically, it is an inborn absence of sexual desire. And I love that they use inborn too. Yeah, me too. There's been a lot of like cause and effect research, you know, um, in terms of, oh, there's a medical condition. Oh, there's there's been um, discussions of, there is like, for instance, there's like, a, there's anecdotally a lot of uh, autism in the population. And so there was at one point, like a question of like some sort of cross situation going on. There's reasons that could be more prevalent, but it shouldn't, it doesn't have anything. To do with it. There was like, oh, well, there's trauma in this population. Well, yeah, because like a lot of them are being put in like really bad situations, you know, and stuff like that. So it was like, it's one of those correlation does not equal causation kind of things. Well, when you're constantly being told that what you're feeling is wrong, right, right, then something's wrong with you. Clearly something's wrong with you. Then like trauma is going to happen. Right, right. It, you're, yeah, you're going to end up in, in, in situations. And I get why early researchers needed to do this because it was just an idea and they were like well there must be a reason right but at some point they kind of had to disavow that and they had to say okay well then let's talk about what the experience is like what how we can help these people what is what is the the and so that was like a next generation of like research in many ways it's very similar to what's happened with autism which mm -hmm. is and there's still you know there's still a, some focus i don't know exactly how much but there's still a certain part of the pop you know the the activist population that's like we need to find a cure or a cause and and that was so much the focus of initial efforts and now it's like all right but but you know whatever the reason might be whether it's just how people are right genetic variability and things happen um, in development or whether there's some sort of like, well, this combination of things or whatever that is irrelevant or secondarily relevant to the fact that people are living on the earth who we, we need to figure out how to help these people and allow them to have meaningful, rich, full lives where they don't feel bad about themselves, right? Just for being a certain type of person. If you look for causes, we're basically saying we're looking for causes so we can stop those causes. To fix you. Right. And so like, get over it. Yeah, over exactly. It. Exactly. You know? I mean, and I realized that my experience with my son being on the spectrum is very, very different than this, but in this, it's connected in that way, which is like, I could give a rat's ass why he is autistic. I don't care at all. He is who he is and I love him. And, you know, his family loves him. What I want for him, what we all want for him is for him to have a meaningful, rich life where he feels valued, um, right? He feels good about himself. That's the only thing that's important. And, and you know, shifting that onto this framework, which is like, who really cares why? Some people might, because it's an interesting question. That's a research question. But the practical, the ethical question is how do we create a world 
where people who do not have those feelings can feel good about themselves and can live meaningful lives. I tell my students, you know, all the time, the, the presentation, the, the person's identity isn't the issue, the ism is the issue. Excellent, yeah. Right, the ism. And so, the, like, there, I, I love the activists who are working at a bigger meta level to talk about how is this represented in the media? How does this show up in law? There's been some, like the Stanford Law Review had this wonderful article about how every law that's written should basically be able to reconcile itself against asexuality and all, all its beautiful forms and everything like that. I mean, one thing that I did wanna like bring up in here and I, I talk about media representation we are getting to a place where we're getting a little bit better media representation, but the people who have been associated with asexuality, whether they were officially out or not, because there weren't officially a lot, a lot of characters that were out, but have been like stated to be like, frequently the, the, the correlation is that they're white men who are like losers, they're sick somehow, they, they have like mental issues, right? Like, so think about it. Um, loved very much by the asexual community is Sherlock Holmes. Oh, right, okay. But he can't get along with anybody, right? And like, okay, and he's, he's hard to get along with, da, 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 da. Or Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Who then gets put into a relationship, right? With someone who's very sexually driven. But but what I will say is he doesn't want to he, he doesn't want to have coitus, right? He doesn't want to <laughs> have sex. He doesn't want to have sex. And then he decides to have sex, not because he's like, oh my God, suddenly I'm like, I just want to rip someone's clothes off. But he's like, Amy wants to have coitus and I love her. And so like what you were saying, Elisa, from before is there are a lot of reasons to have sex. As an ace, as an asexual person, you decide to have sex. And one of those things is this person that you're with wants to have sex and it's not coercive or anything, but he was like, I love her and she wants to have sex. That's, you know, I would, I would even take that back and say that is, take that, back it up a step further and say, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of reasons why people decide to have sex, whatever their orientation is. There are lots of reasons why people decide to have sex. And sometimes it's because you're like, it's been a couple of weeks and we probably should. Yeah, I said no the last few times. So like, we'll have sex. Like you said, sometimes it's because you want to have a baby. Sometimes you're trying to make up. So sometimes you're trying to get someone to give you something. Sometimes you're bored. Like there's so many, but also Lisa, to your point, I think, you know, you can also enjoy it. And all of those things, it doesn't mean like suddenly, oh my God, I had like, I really liked that or I kind of want to have sex today. And so suddenly, oh, does that mean I'm not asexual? Like to your point, like, are you quote asexual enough? One of the things that I think we need to just define in general when we're talking about affectional orientations is what out actually means. Because I've been out for years, but Kosha just found out a couple weeks ago. No, I didn't. I've known for years. I just found out a couple weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> My point being, I 
have never officially stated to my university that I'm asexual, but I'm putting this down as a as a uh, tenure, you know, in my tenure file. And so if somebody all of a sudden my university might find out, you know, so when we say we're out, we're coming out every day. Mm-hmm. And part of the the kind of thing about this orientation that's interesting is it, it is really very invisible. I was ready to marry a guy and I was walking down the street holding his hand a couple years ago and no one would know that I wasn't straight because they don't know what's going on in the bedroom right right and so there is and and I want to say that 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 can be a double-edged sword right to some extent that erases my identity but some to some extent that's a protection I have privilege because of that like I I can I can be vague and say, oh, I'm, I'm queer, you know, whatever. I, I, I can be, there is a protection and a resiliency that I am allotted through that by what we call passing. Um, because I do, when I date, tend to date men, I don't, I, I don't date so much anymore, but when I did, I dated men. So like there was a privilege in being able to not be seen. Um, but that also means that in some ways my identity gets erased. So there's there's a back and forth to all of that. I mean, not to get too down on my family, but they, I had come out to them a couple of years before and then I got engaged to this guy and there was like this audible sigh of relief. Like it was like, oh, okay. You know, I know like when bisexuals end up with men, people are like, okay, as long as you, or like a bisexual woman ends up with a man, it's like, okay, well, thank God, you know? And, uh, but what I, like, I remember when you came out, it was like on Facebook that I saw, right? That you were like, I'm out and proud. And you're like, I'm asexual. Here's where you can learn about it. Um, and I had mentioned it to an, another high school cohort that we had. And I go, oh, Lisa came out as asexual. I didn't, I didn't know. And I, I don't really understand it, but I had done some reading after you came out. And this other person goes, um, oh, no, I mean, she has dated so many guys, right? And I was like, but that doesn't mean that she's not asexual, right? Like, even at that time, six years ago or seven years ago, I still knew that that's not what that meant. But I'm sure you hear that a lot. But like, no, you you almost married this guy. So that you can't be asexual mm-hmm. yeah you must have that in your experience a lot yes because people never get married for any reason other any than sex sexual orientation decoupling that we need to do right, right exactly that romance and people i i'm talking to people all the time and you can't see it again i've got like my little venn diagram finger where you know there's people who experience both there's people who experience romance but not sex sex but not romance and people go what and i say hey hey Somebody who's listening to this, maybe even one of us, has gone to a bar, had sex with somebody, and not fallen in love. I have no, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. You've never done that. I've never, ever done that. Someone in our listening audience has had a romantic relationship, dated someone maybe, and felt all those, you know, what those romantic feelings feel like in your body, and it didn't end up being sexual. It ended before that. Or, or you go, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to sleep with you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't want to have sex with you, but I really like that. We know somebody in our lives who is 
all the romantic, like only wants the high school handholding twilight. I love you, you know, like fireworks, yeah. you know, butterflies, but absolutely is asexual and has a very hard time kind of reconciling those two things. Yeah. Like, shouldn't I? Shouldn't I? There's a lot of, as I like to, as we like, like, there's a lot of shitting on yourself. There's like, shouldn't I want to XYZ? Yeah, she had been in a dating this guy for almost six months and was really enjoying the the dating, the romance part of it. Um, and and she kept trying to talk herself into a sexual encounter with this person. And I was like, I didn't feel like I had any space to say, because I also don't think that, that doesn't, shouldn't come from someone else to be like, have you considered that maybe, right? Um, I don't want to be a drug ad. Maybe Cymbalta is for you, right? Like, I don't want to be that person. Maybe asexuality is for you. Right, but at the same time, I was like, if you're having to talk yourself into it, either there's something really wrong with the relationship, but that doesn't seem to be happening because you love spending time with this person. You love the hand-holding and the snuggling. You don't want to take off clothes and touch him. Yeah. Even she didn't even want to like kiss him, right? Yeah. She but honestly, like it becomes, that's where I start to get into some conversation about like our, the patriarchy and the capitalism that's behind the way that we envision relationships. And this goes to a lot of different things that are happening in, um, in the world right now in terms of that it's a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman where you, it is clear who the father of the children are so that you can pass the wealth down through the male lineage, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that sex therefore is when a penis has, has an orgasm into a vagina, that is sex, right? And, and what, if we continue to define it that way, we are basically supporting patriarchal, capitalist and 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 through capitalism white supremacist values right and and and, but i think asexuality it's when people call it a movement i get it's like it's not like we're out recruiting people right but like a movement but like a movement in terms of what the questions that it forces you to ask yourself about i mean many states up until recently still had consummation laws. Yeah. Your marriage was not legitimate until you consummated it, right? And in many religions, your marriage is not legitimate until you consummate it. And so if a marriage is not consummated and then you break up, who gets the power, who gets to keep the stuff, right? Like, so there's, there's a lot of economics built into our assumptions around this. There's a lot of, I'm just gonna keep using the word patriarchy um, built around this and, and vis-a-vis those things also white supremacy. And, and I'll go ahead and say white supremacy also in the sense that the LGBTQIA movement traditionally has pushed the white gay male agenda. Um, there's been a, you know, a huge conversation about why did we push for marriage equality first and employment rights second? Yeah. Well, Kosha and I had talked about this um, episode of Hidden Brain, 
which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that podcast. With Shankar Vedantam. That particular episode was about how um, how the acceptance of LGBT, I would say even, not even T, right? I would say LG. Yeah, lesbians and, and gay men. The cultural shift is unlike anything that's ever happened ever. Um, it went so rapidly from being like, kill these people to, you know, mainstream characters on TV and, you know, fighting over like things like cakes, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, and that there's still bigotry out there, but the level of fight has dropped to like, can somebody say no to baking a cake for a gay wedding? Right, that's a whole nother level. And I, I mean, it's it's hard to compare one thing to another, right? Because it's oh, all oppression. But I can show you footage of asexual people wanting to go to a gay pride parade and being spit on by the white, uh, I call monosexual individuals. Monosexual being, I'm I'm interested in one other sex, right? And so, at, at like literally being like made fun of and, and spin on. I mean, it's just, it's, um, there's, there's going to be a hierarchy in all communities. Yeah. I mean, and, people are gonna, and the, the power that, the you know, the, the power to affect change, the power to draw attention. So it's really like, for me, it's about like, I'm just so thrilled that you've all have invited me on here to just, if I can make one person's life different and say, you know, we're, we're out there, asexuality.org, asexuality.org, like, there's plenty of other places, but that's kind of like the, the hub. At least, um, I actually, to, to that point, so I do remember when this person we're talking to, Sheila, she said, or talking about, Sheila, she was like, well, is that something you want? You know, when she was talking about not wanting to have sex, and that was kind of where Sheila, she stopped, um, and, and she said something like, well, shouldn't die, shouldn't die, yeah. Right. It was like, shouldn't I want? But I should that? want and this. I should want that. So, is there a good way if someone like a lay person who's like us, right, and this person is not seeking counseling or something, but we know a little bit now about asexuality.org? It how is a way to bring this up to somebody that's not offensive, that that's very loving, or is it something where you're like, just shut up and don't say anything and let them come I think to that, it? I think that the, the, you know, because there can be stigma around the term itself and around, and there's a lot of pressure when you bring up an identity, people are like, they're forced to consider it on the spot in a five second time frame and tell you what they're going to, and then respond, right? Right. Are you asexual? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, oh no, I'm not. And then and then they and then they maybe go off and like think about it forever, right? But it, 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 but I think a better way to have a conversation about it is to talk about it from the perspective of sexual normativity, right? Mm. You know, yeah, there's a lot of pressure in this world, and here's a bunch of ways that it shows up. I I also do some education with counselors because I can teach people about asexuality, and the the chances of them running into an asexual client are slim, right? But I can talk to them about sexual normativity and how that plays out in couples counseling, where one one of the clients is being blamed for not having or for having too high of a libido or too low of a libido, or the fact that a lot of counselors don't feel comfortable talking about sex with people with disabilities, mm, or the yeah. fact that people in certain ethnicities are seen as being dangerous if they're sexual or you know being not sexual 
or whatever and how we treat people who are bigger and how we treat people who are smaller and how a woman is a whore but a man is a man and like all, all of those layers. And so we can talk about how sexual normativity affects us all. I think that's another way that asexuality has brought a lot of a lot to the conversation in that way. Um, and so when you start talking about that, and you can and, you, and in that you can talk about like it's affecting this population, older people. There is a huge problem right now in nursing homes with sexually transmitted disease. Yeah, because <laughs> they're not talking about like they're talking about contraception, but nobody's worried about getting pregnant anymore. Right. When you're 85 years old, you're not worried about having a baby. What you what you need to be told is, hey, you may have been in a relationship for 55 years, and now you're starting to have sex again. And guess what? You probably, you need to be taking prophylactics against infection. There's an episode of Parks and Rec, Parks and Recreation about this, that there's like STDs or STIs like rampant through the, the nursing home population. And that, and, and we have to, we have to teach people like you didn't have to use condoms for 55 years when you were married. <laughs> Yeah. Now you're having sex, like you have to use a condom. That's how you right. do it, you know? Right. And that's, I th- that's sex, in, in sex in any of those populations does not have to just be male orgasm and female penetration, right? Like, and and I mean, when, I, when I've learned like uh, sex therapy and stuff like that, we talk about all the ways that sexuality can show up. And with people with disabilities, assistive devices, and like there's a, there's a lot of things that are, that are possible but there's so many stereotypes. I mean, just you look in the movies and just watch who's being portrayed in different ways sexually. And it's just, you know, I, I, I think that's, I never had thought about this, but certainly one of the issues I've talked to, you know, in my little group of girlfriends about has been how crummy it feels to be the woman who has a higher libido than their partner. Um, And, Again, going back to the issue of sexual normativity, which is that's not how it's supposed to work, right? You're always the woman's the one that's supposed to be like, oh, okay, fine. Or like, sure, like at, like some enthusiasm is great. Like you want enthusiasm, right? But it's very, it's been portrayed as unusual, almost unheard of for a woman to be, you know, the female partner in a, a heterosexual marriage relationship to be the one being like, how about now? How about now? How about now? And, and it's really bad on for mental health on both sides, right? Because it also affects the male partner being like, well, why don't I want it as much as I'm supposed to want it? And then the woman's like, what's wrong with me? Um, It just like, you're blowing my mind talking about this concept of like, sexual normativity, there's a right and a wrong way to be a sexual being. And that's basically what it is, right? And if you stray from those those channels, it's a problem. You're not normal. And what I want to and what I want to again say is that this has a lot to do with how control is used. Because if a woman is sexual, then you're not sure who the father is, right? Like it still comes back to that, like that lineage, that capitalism. If you can, if you can say that people of certain ethnicities who are sexual are dangerous then you can portray white supremacy. And like it, they, these tropes are there for control. They're there for, um, for economics. I mean, it's just, it's all interwoven. Well, and also, Elisa, now that you say that, it, it makes me think of even like these cute 
cute, I put that in quotes, cute little old wives tales. So when I had my daughter, um, she came out looking carbon copy like my husband. Batsy looks exactly like, I mean, still to this day, but, um, and then my mom also look, looks exactly like my grandfather. And so people, people would be like, oh, she looks exactly like Brian. And then she'd be like, I'm sorry. And I was like, I know how genetics works. Like I had a feeling that she could look like him, you know, but when my mom talks about it, she goes, oh, when the daughter looks, when the kids look like the, the dad, it's good luck. Which throw your head, throw your mind back multiple generations. When your kids look like the father, it's actually protective for the woman, right? I was just going to say to your point, Elisa, where you're like, now we know who the father is. We always know who the mother is, but it's, and so like, what's funny is I look exactly like my mother. So I go, you're the bad luck. What's that mean? Huh? You're bad luck. I know. I go, what does that mean about me? I look exactly like you. And she's like, oh, and she kind of made a joke. She's like, you're not good luck. And I was like, well, but it's true. But what? But shut up. So, but what, what the point, don't shut up. You're the host of this podcast. But to the point that you're saying is, <laughs> you're such an asshole, Shulshi. <laughs> I know. So, but to the point you were saying, I think that's really, it, it, that's in a lot of cultures is, well, now the child doesn't have to be orphaned, right? Like left out in a field or given away or enslaved or something like that and now it's just this quote cute say oh it's good luck like that she looks like her dad yeah but it's just because it's because it's a patriarchal thing same i want to pivot a little what here's another pivot one of the things you said you want to talk about um was how this idea of sexual normativity affects our ideas of friendship yeah i'm really really fascinated to hear about that only Partially because like my best friend in the whole world, I, I am totally like, that's my life partner. Like I'm married. That's, and I, I love my husband so des- dearly, but like, and I say it like kind of hilariously like, oh, that's cute. I'm married. Uh-huh. But like, <laughs> but my best friend is like, like you can, you can even hear me. Like, I can't describe it. I'm so deeply entwined with her. Oh, yeah. I love her so dearly. But it's not a sexual relationship. But yeah, yeah. And and I think you're saying exactly what I was gonna say, which is that but because you're not having sex, it's not privileged as much. Right. And it, it's so I have half a dozen intimate relationships in my life. It it's very once you get there and you you know, it's so freeing because now I can have these deep intimate relationships with my friends that it's frustrating because like, I can't have them all come move and live with me because they're, most of them are in partnerships or are like, you know, pursuing other things. Right. So there is a frustration to it, but it definitely like expands my horizons. We all know that person who turned 30, got married and disappeared from their friendships. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want it in any way. Right. But it, by not having sex be a defining factor in the intimacy that I'm allowed to have with these relationships. I have this morning, I spent time with like, I I call her my everything. She, you know, she's just amazing. She's got a boyfriend, they're living together, but I would, I would, I feel like she's a soulmate, but I get to have tons of soulmates. Mm -hmm. It opens me up to that 
And, and it sucks because, you know, if I need somebody to drive me to a doctor's appointment, I don't have a live-in to do that. You know, like I don't have, I have to take out the trash every day and I have to cook every meal. And some days I just don't want to. And my dog is a sweet companion, but she hasn't learned how to cook yet, you know, or do the laundry. And lame, lame. Dog needs to get a job. Get a job, dog. <laughs> but but at the same time, the richness of my life, I have been able to take all that energy. And even like in my twenties, when everybody's out like checking out the scene, I was trying, but it like saves me so much energy to just not to take that off the table, right? I've gotten to do so many cool things in my life. I've never felt. Um, like nailed down, like not nailed down. That sounds so awful, but like, I've never felt like I had to like limit yourself, move somewhere for a, for a relationship or not move somewhere for a relationship. I've always been my own, like my alone, alone wolf. I've always been able to kind of pursue what interested me. I've been able to prioritize my education and my career over certain other developmental things that other people do. I'm not saying one is worse or better, but it's just more me. And it took me getting over this idea that like, well, I have to get married and have kids. At the age of 37, it was like, this is the last shot to get married and have kids. And I really had to ask myself, like, I don't want that. So I call myself a, a leather spinster. That's what I call nice. myself. I love it. So I like, this is, I don't know, it's like a bad, bad shot, but I have this tattoo on my arm, which is, these are my, these are my girlfriends. And like, I use that word lightly because it doesn't fully encapsulate the sort of, it's, they're my home. They're yeah. home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And I, I, what I have with my husband and the family, no, what I have with him and we raising children and this, you know, domestic family life, it has its own value. Mm -hmm. It does, it does. Right? If you, if so, if somebody didn't want the domestic yeah. life, I would be like, I totally get it. And this, you know, I totally get it, right? Uh, out of out of my girlfriends, uh, one of them, my best friend actually did not want to have kids. And I was like, I don't blame you for a, not even a millisecond because, you know, I did reproductive rights work for the longest time. And my, when the second I got pregnant with my daughter, or sorry, my child, my used to be daughter is now non-binary. So my child, my first child, um, I was like, parenting, being pregnant and parenting is only for people who choose it. And and I and I want to also like normalize that there are plenty of people who are ace or aro who do want desperately. I mean, David, the, the end of the story so far with David J is that for he had the friend that he felt he was madly in love with who was in a relationship with, and he wanted to like co-parent with them and they basically said no because like that's you know and was heartbroken and was literally just wanted to be a parent so badly and finally found uh like a two other people with whom to co-parent but then it became about negotiating the finances and the legal rights and the you know the education and like the value system and everything of this and so it was like this huge celebration within our community and they finally like were able to say yes he is a legitimate parent of in within this group of three. And that's where we call it the word we call it like queer platonic relationships, which are where it's maybe not two people and it maybe it's not sexual, but it has that same wow. loyalty. Yeah. Right. Well, and 
and also like Shalushi has those relationships and you have that soulmate relationship with a woman and I feel like that's totally cool like people are like oh your best friend is a woman like that you would move in together or you'd be you know I call it like porch buddies like you're 70 and drinking wine and you're sitting on the porch yeah, we've all talked about like leaving our husbands and like buying a compound somewhere living but, in their own years. <laughs> so I'm I'm in a sexual romantic relationship with my husband I I adore him I love him I I love being with him but I I also have a friendship with a man who and he and I are like peas and carrots like we're so similar and we get along we talk every day and he and I both have like anxiety and body image issues and body dysmorphia zero sexualness in that at all zero and I'm like this has nothing to do with sex I promise but it was like not okay and he and I still have conversations like Brian and I still have to like work through those things but like it's not okay to have that kind of intimacy with not you know it's like okay with me but it can be scary that sexual normativeness it freaks Brian out he was scared like yeah no I mean I think that part of it is that men have been socialized to have women's bodies be possession right 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 and so like there is that it's it, you know, whether he rationally realizes it or not, there's still going to be that, like, am I man enough alarm that goes off or whatever. A, yeah. A bit yeah. of like, this is, this is for me and mm-hmm. only me. I know I, and this is actually dovetails really nicely into something I was hoping that you could comment on is, you know, as, as the, the nature of relationship changes. And, you know, I've heard this from people that say like, the, the breakdown of, of chores is much more equitable in gay or lesbian relationships because there isn't this like, you know, the hetero expectations put on it, which is like, you're gonna do all the child rearing and I'm gonna mow the lawn stuff. Um, and then just hearing the story about, you know, oh my God, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna say Jason, but that's not his name. Who's the person that founded Asexual? David Network? J. David J. I like stuck it together. Uh, David <laughs> J. Um, finding this, you know, relationship with two other people, but then having to negotiate all of this stuff. That's actually what I think what we should all be trying to do in our relationships. Right, right, exactly. Right. To not come in with like, this is what we're, this is what marriage means, or this is what a relationship means, but do the hard work. It's, 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 it, that, in that way, it's such a movement right? Because it deconstructs so many assumptions, starting with sex and romance are the same thing, but then friendship and what is the law doing for people? And what is the media, how is the media portraying people who don't have sex? I mean, you know, it's just, there's, there's entire, there's entire tropes of literature just on that, not even on the actual like orientation, but on the larger sociological implications and philosophical implications of the orientation. And it just, it's, I, it, that's why it's so exciting to study, but it also makes it really hard to study because it's like, I'm in counselor education 
And so I'm trying to like study it from like counseling, but it's like, but I've got to pull in this and this and this and this and this for you to understand what I'm talking about because it is such a foreign concept. I just had an article rejected because they say, well, you spend so much time talking about all these other like parts of the literature in the beginning and like we get it. And it's like, I'm just so used to having to explain all of that for people to get. Well, it's almost like when you're watching a show, like you're watching Loki or something and they're like previously seen on and you have to do like all of the, what has happened in the season up till that point. Osha, you've made like half a dozen pop culture references that I have no, like, <laughs> I'm so not cool. <laughs> I brought up Sheldon. I brought up Sheldon, but I've never actually seen it. I just brought so my analogy to that was gonna be like, hey, come and have dinner at my house and I'm gonna serve this one thing. But in order for you to eat this one thing, I need to put out the wine and the butter and the cheese and the, and the, I need to like grow a garden so I can have fresh basil, right? Like it's just, you can't, it, this one thing cannot exist without, without the cultural baggage that surrounds it. And it doesn't make any sense in isolation. Those are two very, very reasonable metaphors. <laughs> I've been spending the last two years doing a lot of like reading on anti-racist work because I realized that was an area that I needed to work on and, and like racial trauma and pieces like that. And it's just like, how do you, you can't fit it into just like an idea because there's so much in there. And then I've got to teach it to students and I've got eight weeks to teach it. And it's just like, it's like this menu of options of things they could read and watch and this and that. And so all you got, all I can do is hope that I plant the seed of curiosity. And that's what I hope to do when I, when I speak on asexuality, when I write on asexuality is I hope I made you, I hope I made you curious. Yeah. And gave someone resources. Yeah. And, and, and then, and if people want to contact me, if they have any questions or information, uh, you know, need, uh, information or I want to you know help with research or anything like that I'm Woodruff w-o-o-d-r-u-f-f at b-v-u b-v-u dot e-d-u and um, I'm happy to hear from people I say that all the time and I, I almost never hear but you know you never know like you never know it's like you, you know when I was trying to write my dissertation there were like seven dissertations on asexuality right and in the history of dissertations well, I mean, in, in social sciences. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, not, not like at your university, like in the grand scale, the whole umbrella of- In the University of Michigan, Michigan data. Yeah. yeah. And wow. so it's just, yeah, no, it's one of those things. There's actually a whole lot of like bachelor students and master's students who are writing like final papers on it. And so it literally comes to the point where it's like, like, to cite something and like they've got some good ideas and you know you're always when you're doing research you're always prioritizing like who what is the most like uh has the most authority but at some point you really are having to cite what's out there you know right 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 so i could talk i'm sure kosha feels the same way but i this is like this is like a, but this is like in my lane i love this stuff i could talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours but unfortunately i have an stuff to do tomorrow and I'm sure you <laughs> we do all too. have Monday it's, it's Sunday we all have stuff to do right. tomorrow. yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one final question before I, I turn it over to Kosha to ask her wrap it up question so yeah so the you know the last question I have for you is you know we touched upon this a little bit earlier but if people are feeling like huh 
I wonder, or I'm scared, or I know this about myself, but I'm not sure I'm ready to, to say it out loud. What advice would you have for someone who's in the space of sort of like either just starting to wonder or, you know, all the way to, no, I know that I am either aromantic or asexual or both. And um, I just, I, I need, I need to, you know, I want to, I want to say something, but I'm not sure what. I need help. Right. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I, I would want to say it's not an easy question. It's not an easy answer. You're not alone. Um. You are not alone. You are not sick. You are not wrong. Your experience is valid and you are loved for a lot, all the other things in your life too, right? Um, there are resources out there if you have access to the internet, Tumblr, um, asexuality.org, there are Facebook pages. The online community is very welcoming. There's always gonna be the weirdos, on, but the people who are mean <laughs> online, but they're, they, the, it's a welcoming group. And there are a lot of people who have been um, in positions that you've been in, but I mean, trust, I would say, trust your, in your gut. I, for so long, I didn't, tr I mean, I, I can only speak for me and saying that I, for so long, I didn't trust my gut. I kept looking for an, ex an explanation or a, an out or whatever. When I finally came to it, this, weight dropped off my shoulders. It was just, and there are still people in my life who are very close to me who we just don't talk about it. Officially they know, but it's not something you talk about. And that can be painful, but I know myself. I, I don't want to give advice to any one person. I would just say, you know, keep, keep reading, keep, stay curious, but just know that you are valid and, and don't let the ism get you down. <laughs> love it. I love that. That's going to be on the, our next t-shirt. Yeah. Don't let the ism get you down. I do love that. And I think, you know, we have a lot of people on who are like, well, I'm not an expert. Um, so I would say maybe not what, what would your advice be, but what would you advise? And those are two different things, right? Like you, you, no one has to take what we say, but what we are doing, what this podcast is for is giving voices to people who haven't had a voice, who haven't had a place at the table. And I think this conversation has been exactly that. I mean, how many times have you said like, there's just not a lot out there. We are misrepresented. We're, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, people think that, you know, it's not valid. So you get shushed. That's, that's what it is to, to be, to not be able to say I am speaking. So we love that you are here yeah. and we are, we love that you are saying I am speaking. This is exactly when we talked about what we wanted for this podcast, this is exactly what we wanted was to talk to people who haven't had a voice and to help give other people voices who are having our same experiences. Um, so to close out, I do want to ask, I, you know, you're, you're in this social sciences. And so you might've heard the word family act. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. Um, what is some of your words, phrases? Yeah, a friend of ours said that her grandmother came up with the term 
Polish came up with the term garachu for the garage. And then she went to Poland and started using that term. And all her Polish relatives were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> because she assumed that her grandmother was using the real word. And she's like, no, she just made it up. <laughs> she like Polishized a, an English word. And now I say the word garachu all the time. So are there any words like that that, um, that you have in your life? We have, we still call each other by a lot of nicknames that like were childhood nicknames. So like my, my brother calls me Ita because then when he was a kid, that's all he could pronounce. And my cousin calls me Sasa because that's what she could pronounce. And when my brother was, his name is Alan, A-L-A-N. But he thought that when he said A-L-A-N, he was just doing the A. So he would say A-L-A-N cross and then he'd cross it. And so I'm always talking about A-L-A-N cross, which is hilarious because then when he was in med school, he actually had a teacher named Alan Cross. Um, that is awesome. <laughs> and like. Me say, that's totally feminine. Yeah, yeah. It's saying A-L-A-N cross. But like, not, I can't think of any like things i think ala and cross is exactly what this word means because like you would say that and nobody your else would... would know your dad would know but everyone else would be like that's not why are you spelling his name that's so weird and saying cross <laughs> and then saying cross that's not your last name <laughs> he thought he was doing just the letter alien because it's like alien cross oh that's amazing so and then so the good. fact that he had a teacher named Alan Cross. Oh, I don't know when I just thought of one. So when we were, when my little brother was little, we would try to get him to eat his peas. And so we would say they were basketballs. And so we'd be bouncing, 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 basketball, basketball, basketball. And so he thought peas were basketball. He would call peas basketballs like well into like being five and six years old. But then because of that, he didn't have a word for ball. So he would say gabow. Gabow, gabow, gabow. And he would like, there's like old VHS tape of him like running after this Care Bears ball going gabow, 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 And like, so like, I, yeah, that's something that like. Do you still call it a gabow? No, I don't know. I don't, I think I've. But if, but if you said that to him, he would totally knew what Totally you know what a gabow is. My, my father would know. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. what we were talking about. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. funny too, because that's kind of how, at least how Kosha's kid has named me, which is when she was starting to learn to talk, it was like there was mama, and then there was like mama ma. Namina. And there was Namina, which is actually from my kid who couldn't say Nanima, which is, you know, the word for uh, for grandma in Gujarati, Nanima. It was too hard. So she went to Namina. So that's been part of that. But I am now Mamash. So it's Mama. Mama Ma, which was a grandma, Namina, which was my mom, and then Mamash, which is me. So Mashi, Mashi is the word for aunt, like mom, sisters, Mashi. So, and Shelushi Mashi is a lot. So I was like, can you say Mashi? And then she started calling her Mamash. And now so she's seven and she still calls her Mamash. And our little sister just had a baby. And I was like, I think she's going to be Mamash. So that just starts, yeah. 
do you, ha- I, the last question really is, is there anything that's left on the table that you want to say that you want, that we didn't get to talk about, that we didn't get to discuss, that you're like, this is pressing, or I think this is important. Well, I mean, I think going back to like some, stere- some stereotypes that I realized I didn't really talk about is like, there's always some question of like, are we just cold hearted? Like, are we capable of love? kind of thing and they've actually done surveys where people have like ascribed colder non-human traits to people who were described to them as a- potentially asexual and so just like recognizing that that's not true I you know I still have love in my heart I still love children I just don't want children of my own I we also sometimes don't want children of our own and we have them <laughs> Just the single woman trope, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so like, but like, um, I want to be pretty. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, um, like, somebody t- told me once, "Oh, you look so pretty," and it was just like I almost cried because it's just like, you, you people just start to assume that you don't want to be attractive either. You know, like, well, why would it matter for you to be attractive? Ever? So just like, you know, there's just like s- stuff like that. I think and. And there are some positive representations in the media. Um, I was really, really taken in Netflix. They had this show called Sex Education, which was a British show about high schoolers. And Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson is, I was going to say, I know why you love it. <laughs> she did. She, there was a, a student who came to her and she's a sex therapist, came to her and asked about asexuality. And she gave this 90 second monologue that blew my freaking mind because it just said, I mean, you say, what would you say to somebody who's questioning? And I would say, watch that monologue because it it normalizes. It says, you're okay. It says, there's this term asexuality that may be something that you're experiencing. I just, and of course, the fact that it was Jillian Anderson, Kosha says, ah, Jillian Anderson, because she knows that back in the day, we used to be X-Files freaks, but yeah, I wasn't, you and Emily were, yeah. (laughs) um, I thought they did a really, really good job there. I thought um, there is a character on BoJack Horseman who comes out as asexual in the fourth season um, and they do a really good job with it there. Meanwhile, there's an episode of House where House cures an asexual couple mm. oh, and okay. proves okay. that they're just, you know, he, he's like convinced it's a hormone thing. And then it turns out that one's saying they're asexual to please the other and, oh, he won $100, you know. And, and for so many people, that was one of yeah. their first accesses to the term is that it's a curable issue. Um, so, I mean... But yeah, no, I would definitely look up that uh, Jillian Anderson monologue. She does a really, they just, they did a really good job with that show in sex positivity in a high school. Like if you educate children, they will be better off kind of like, duh, you know. I think the more we talk about it, right, the more people are, you, you stop with the distance. I mean, that's another thing that we talk about with this podcast is, you know, so far, a lot of people are like, oh, LGBTQA, whatever, whatever, like LGBT plus. And so there are those other letters are also important. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've really worked to even teach counselors 
And one of my kind of things is that just because you went to like the training that was three hours long on gay men doesn't mean that you know what's going on with these folks. And we can have a whole different conversation about bisexual erasure. We can have a whole conversation about pansexual erasure. We can have, you know, intersex. Oh my goodness, there is so much there. And so to just say, well, gay men, lesbian woman, now I've done the training. The, I, Koshi, you said it so well earlier where you were like, LGB not T because guess what it's a completely different construct as we close out here um I want you to say this again and I could say it but I want you to your hashtags that you put in yeah when you talk about asexuality I want it to be very loud and clear when someone is thinking like maybe I'm asexual can you say what you would advise one more time but I would want somebody to know if they were thinking they were asexual or or, or knew someone um, who is asexual and looking to support them to just know that it, this is a valid sexual orientation. There are people out there. Um, the internet is a great place to get started, kind of poking around, seeing things on your own terms. Asexuality.org is great. I would say just to remember that you are not sick, you are not broken, you are not wrong, you just are not that way. Um, and um, and that's okay. And you're valid, and you are all the wonderful things that you are, besides sexuality or lack thereof. I love you. Thank you so much. Oh my God! Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Elisa. We love you. I yeah. love you. I can't speak for Solshi, but I think she loves you too. But not that way. <laughs> exactly thank you elisa for your time and your openness and we love you and we will talk to you very soon yeah um it was so great to make this connection again too absolutely we'll talk soon babe all right thank you guys love you bye